as we kind of dive into a heavier topic, I'm going to ask you to bear with me as apparently I was more excited than I thought yesterday and, and my voice has been struggling. I yelled too much, I guess, um, since last night and even this morning. Um, so please bear with me. Um, as we dive into the text, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message I have titled, The Conduct of God's Children. Colossians chapter 3, we will expound on verse 13, but I want to begin reading as we've done for the last few weeks in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. In 1792, a conflict arose, and it came from one afternoon when a woman by the name of Mrs. Elphinstone, an upper-class woman, had visited at the house of the Lady Broddick. And during the course of their conversation, she began just lavishing praise on her host, Lady Broddick. And then eventually she made some comments that caused Lady Broddick to start a little bit. She began, Mrs. Elphinstone began, you have been a very beautiful woman. So the lady brought up, replied, have been? You can see where this is going. Yes, you have been a very beautiful woman. And she goes on and says, you have a very good autumnal face. And even now, you must, you must acknowledge, though, that the lilies and the roses, they're somewhat faded. Forty years ago, I am told, a young fellow could hardly gaze upon you with impunity. This further caused problems because Lady Braddock had only recently turned 30. <laughs> if there were ever fighting words, these were it. <laughs> Indeed, Lady Braddock was offended, and she, she could not put down her offense. And so she challenged Mrs. Elphinstone to a duel. It became known as the Petticoat Duel. It was fought in London's Hyde Park in 1792, and the, the pair began. They, they arrived at the park, and first they drew pistols. And Miss, Mrs. Elphinstone managed to penetrate Lady Braddock's hat, meaning she was aiming for the head. It did no damage. The hat just fell to the ground. When that didn't result in anything, then they drew swords. Apparently this was a serious offense. 
They didn't quite go for the heads, but finally Lady Broderick struck blood by nicking the arm of Mrs. Elphinstone. And so she returned home, and after some dwelling, probably with her unwounded arm, she arm, she began to compose a letter of apology to Lady Braddock. This story has been recounted publicly in the centuries since. Even today, though, there's, there's doubt on whether it really happened. Regardless, it's been told. It ranks among some of the most bizarre duels that you'll ever read, and has even been recounted in known magazines. Regardless of whether it took place or not, we do have some evidence, and Even still, what we see is that there was a time in U.S. history and in worldwide history, European history, when duels were the means in which disagreements and offenses were settled. On July 11, 1804, so 218 years ago tomorrow, will mark one of the most famous duels in the U.S. history. It was a time when Vice President Aaron Burr shot and killed his political antagonist, and the architect of our economy, Alexander Hamilton. There may have been a time when this was culturally acceptable. It might have been culturally normal. But it has never been acceptable according to God's will. This is not how we settle differences and grievances. Our Lord himself is one who is gracious and merciful. And those two characteristics are fully expressed in the fullness of his forgiveness. Throughout his word, he has compelled creation to be or to manifest forgiveness, just as he has manifested forgiveness to those who call upon him. And we'll see that in our text today. If you haven't figured out by now that as we've advanced through Colossians chapter 3, the verses 12 through 17, We really have a part of a series of messages going on, expanding on what it means to be a child of God. We began and spent three weeks in the first part of Colossians 3.12, examining what it means to be a child of God, where it says, holy and beloved, chosen. This is critical because only when we understand who we are in Christ can we then live in Christ. And so last week, we saw the character of a child of God in the second part of verse 12. It's there that Paul stipulates that the character of a child of God is a compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. That character then now leads us into the conduct of a child of God. Paul explains that in light of who the Colossians are in Christ, that when they live out their compassion and they live out that kindness and humility and meekness and patience, that character will be manifested in their conduct. And so now we approach verse 13 and we see three aspects of that conduct. I want you to note first the child of God's restraint. The child of God's restraint in the first part. Again, the character of verse 12, the compassionate hearts and kindness and so on, that character produces this conduct. And it begins with this willingness to bear with one another. To live in the body of Christ is hard, especially if the church is functioning rightly. Because what it should be doing is bringing together people of differences. 
By the word of God, we are told that the church is made up of people from different cultures. We see that in Gentile and Jew expressed in the New Testament. The church is also made up of, excuse me, my voice again. The church is also made up of, of people who are from different gifts. You see this in 1 Corinthians 12 with the teaching and the exhortation and the preaching. It's also made up of people of different mindsets. We think about the differences between Paul and Barnabas and even different personalities, which led to the differences between Paul and John Mark. When you gather together a group of people with such a vast array of differences, difficulty will arise. That should not surprise us. While the church functions as friends, and indeed it really should function as more than friends, as individuals really united under the work of Christ, as functioning individuals then who come together in unity and love, as we'll see in the ongoing verses, 14 and 15 mm-hmm. later on, the people of the church should be so close that what impacts somebody over here impacts a person back there. And what impacts a person over here should be felt by the person over here. And so while the church may be made up of our friends, though, it's not like our friends outside of the church. These people are chosen for you, not by you. Isn't that what we learned in Colossians 3.12? They're chosen by God. With your friends outside of the church, you're permitted to choose who who they are. And if those friends irritate you, then all you do is simply separate for a time. Or in today's culture, you cancel them or unfriend them, whatever it may be. Living within the body of Christ, living within the church, you can't do that. We don't get to decide who is part of the church and who isn't. In one of our past ministries, we actually had somebody do that or try to do that. Because one person was a different class level, this lady didn't want her to be part of the church. Eventually, that led to a church discipline issue that finally broke up that group of believers. It's not how we live as Christians with other Christians. Paul says here we bear with one another. Hidden within this word bearing is the idea of tolerance. And I don't mean tolerance by, the, by compromise. It's quite literally saying a call to tolerate those who irritate you. The idea of bearing with one another, it's, it's not implying here that there's a sin issue. There's no grievous act of malice. There's no intentional harm. No, the idea conveyed by this word is simply to bear with theirs, those whose character traits or unpleasant oddities, they're just an irritant. It may be that the individual is just plain annoying. It may be that the person is awkward. It may be that they're odd, just a little bit different than everyone else. But Paul says to bear with them, to tolerate their quirks. It may be that you're well within your right to demand change or request adjustment. And yet, out of consideration for another, you suspend that right. 
likely it's probably just a matter of weakness, a matter of immaturity in the other believer. But not being a sin issue is probably not a priority focus either. What will probably happen is it will become an area in which the Lord is the Lord's dealing with them in something else. He will soften those hard edges. And so Paul calls on believers here to bear with one another, to restrain yourselves. N.T. Wright writes, restrain your natural reaction towards odd or difficult people. That's his summary of this verse, or that part of this verse at least. There's a tendency to react in defense of our comfort. We want to be in a constant state of comfort and peace. And when that is disrupted, we react in an effort to preserve it. Think about how uncomfortable we are in public when someone who is unusual or peculiar is around. Earlier this week, I had a a meeting in Olympia. And the, the chosen place was a coffee shop not far from the Capitol building, right across from a public park. And so I showed up at 7 a.m. Do you know what happens in large cities at 7 a.m. near public parks? That's when the odd, the peculiar, and the strange people start to wake up. <laughs> it's true. It's interesting to see how people responded, though. In a short amount of time, just sitting there, I watched one lady begin talking about these people. In one sense, she was talking about them as her friends, but then in another sense, she was calling them characters and various names. At times, her her attitude was so appalling, I might have called her out on it if I wasn't already thinking the same thing in my head. (laughs) Another instance, a man came in asking for money, and I won't even begin to describe his looks. And one man in line waiting for his coffee began to beray this individual with all kinds of profanity and words, referring to this man whom he didn't know as awful and horrible. Someone he didn't even know. For my meeting, while I'm sitting there discussing with a friend, we sat at a window, because there was a long, I guess, bar there is the way to describe it, that ran along the, t- the, the window, not a lot of tables. And while we're talking, a lady was outside, and I don't know if she was arguing with herself or with her backpack or what, but she began kicking it and making motions and then banging on the window while we're trying to have a serious conversation. My friend apologized and said, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't know what this was like. No worries, I'm getting a lot of sermon illustrations. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, I was. For the most part, I... I went about my work and my meetings. But indeed, it did create circumstances that were awkward and uncomfortable, even irritating at times. And yet sometimes the best thing to do is not respond, but simply to tolerate it, even if it's just a nuisance. The Lord, through the writings of Paul here, calls upon believers to suspend their reaction or even possibly suspend their right in some cases, to demand conformity from others. The call here, though, is more specific. This letter is not merely saying, put up with the quirks of people like those that I just described to you in Olympia. Notice the phrase that Paul uses after he exhorts the Colossians to bear. He says, bear 
with one another. The text is giving indication of how the church acts amongst itself, within its own ranks. The call here is how the church responds to one another, to those within the body of Christ. Of anyone, it is the body of Christ that should display a, a, to have a display of tolerance, a display of tolerance of the idiosyncrasies and of the peculiarities of one another. We shouldn't be uncomfortable with one another. That truth is derived from the value of human life. That if we value another as God values people, our willingness to put up with them increases exponentially. Sometimes we do make mistakes. We do dumb things. Maybe it's just our personality at times. You guys, this church, you have the ultimate opportunity to put this into practice. Mm -hmm. Of any church, you are the best equipped to live this out. And I know that because you have to put up with me, who sometimes has oddities and quirks. Even now, I know sometimes you have to deal with me and tolerate me. You ask, how does he know? Because I have to live with myself every day. <laughs> we do make mistakes. We do dumb things. And yet the Lord calls upon us to bear with one another. Ultimately, the disposition to bear with one another is an expression, again, of the character of verse 12. It's an expression of that compassion. Knowing that others probably treat them horribly too, we don't. We have compassion on them. We treat them with kindness which is a manifestation of grace, giving grace where grace is needed. It's an exercise in humility, recognizing truly I'm not better than that person. It's easy to think that way. And it's definitely an exercise in patience. We bear with one another in the minor, the non-sinful things. Sometimes people need nothing more than the grace and space to grow. I want you to note second, the child of God's release. The concept of bearing with one another is a matter of just tactfully relating to others, <coughs> tolerating what is not a sin issue, even though it's an irritant. But Paul doesn't stop there. Instead, choosing to enhance or, or further that position, uh, he aims to something deeper. And that's why I want you to note God's, the child of God's release. The first appeal is for a believer to restrain himself, not insisting on acquiescence and minor nuisances. But now this appeal, it's, it's furthered by this call here to release another from their obligation of restitution for a legitimate and even sinful offense. Forgiving one another. This phrase is far more reaching than just bearing, because in this case, it's indicating the cancellation of an intentional wrong, not an intentional wrong, but of an actual wrong versus just a, an irritation. I think it was D.L. Moody who said something when conveying the idea of forgiveness, saying something about you bury the hatchet. But you don't bury it with the handle out so that you can just grab it whenever you want to reach for it. 
That attitude is contrary to the nature of the word forgiveness. The Greek word used in our text, this word is charizomenoi. This may seem unimportant until we realize the root of that word. Charizomenoi. Charizo. Charis. That's the root word and you hear that in there. That's the word for grace. That's the Greek word for grace. And so contained within the word of forgiveness is the concept of grace. Telling us that forgiving another is an attitude and an action, an activity of grace. It consists of the same grace that God has lavished upon us. And now he is imploring us to extend that grace to others. It's further confirmed by the text of Ephesians 4.32. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Notice how Paul links the child of God's character here, just as he does in our text in Colossians, noting that once again it's a product of who one is. He even refers to some of the same characteristics. We see two here. The first is compassion or tender-hearted in this text. And the other is kindness. I want you to remember what those mean from last week's conversation. The first compassion is a deep feeling for concern for others. Compassion then compels forgiveness because it sets aside our own feelings of, for justice. Less concerned about the hurt we may have received in that moment, we're more concerned about what that person may need. Maybe they need restoration. Maybe they need Christ-likeness. Maybe they need holiness. Or maybe they just had a bad day, something's going on, and they just need to give you to extend them grace. And so in compassion, their need for forgiveness outweighs my need for justice. I ask you to also remember the significance of kindness. Kindness, grace in action, as I shared with you. Grace in action is expressed by the action of forgiveness. That is to say that forgiveness is derived from kindness because it is an expression of the grace of God. Lupriolo writes, saying, What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness first and fundamentally is a promise. Forgiveness is not a feeling, but a promise. He goes on and says, when you grant forgiveness to someone, you're making a promise to that person, which involves the following three things. First, you're promising not to bring up that offense. Again, ever. Second, he says, you're promising not to speak to others about that offense. And third, you're promising not to dwell on that offense yourself. Notice a change in mentality in what Priolo says. With these words, he stipulates that forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a, it's a promise. And I appreciate that phrasing because it, may, it means that granting forgiveness is not a matter of our emotions. It's not a matter of how I feel about a person or if I like that person. Instead, he conveys it as a promise to say that I am hurt indeed. 
but you have acknowledged it and I will no longer enforce my right, quote unquote, or my desire to hold it against you. I promise to harbor nothing against you any longer. I won't even speak of it to anyone else. You release that individual from the burden of their offense. Forgiveness goes against our natural inclination for justice. It goes against our natural desire for retribution. Ultimately, the lack of forgiveness is a result of our unwillingness to do so. And we have our reasons. Our reasons are many. Sometimes we don't want to forgive because we want others to suffer the way we were hurt. We want them to experience that same hurt enacting a form of retribution on them. At other times, we withhold forgiveness as a warning, as if to say, don't ever hurt me because I will hurt you back. Sometimes it's just a matter of anger. It's a heart issue. And at other times, we simply just don't like a person and not granting forgiveness allows us the opportunity to continue disliking them. The reasons are plenty. But none of those reasons is an expression of God's grace. The same grace that the Lord has dispensed towards us. Matthew 18, 21 through 22, it's often quoted, the Lord Jesus Christ tells his followers there to forgive 70 times 7. As in, forgive without limit. That is the healthy way to live. On the other hand, a lack of forgiveness destroys relationships. And the longer it goes on, the harder it is to even repair that relationship. It destroys us, allowing bitterness to take root in our lives. It germinates and it grows. It destroys us from within. And finally, it destroys our relationship with God. Consider the advice of Romans twelve nineteen, And there the Apostle Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. A lack of forgiveness destroys our relationship with God, because at that point, a lack of forgiveness indicates a lack of trust in God. It takes what the Lord has promised in this text and places the control into our own hands. It says, No, I will take care of this. I don't trust you to do what you say you will, Lord. Consider also the mutual nature of forgiveness. Just like he said, bear with one another, we have forgive one another. The character of the body of Christ is characterized by Christ's forgiveness. And it is evidenced by forgiving one another. To expand on the implications of this, Think about our ongoing battle with the flesh. We battle with that flesh daily, and there will indeed come a time when each of us will need forgiveness for something. We will mess up, and we'll need somebody else's forgiveness. How can we expect forgiveness from others when we're not willing to extend it? Forgiveness is a spiritual matter, as Timothy Lane says. The failure to forgive ultimately costs you heaven itself. It reveals an unforgiving heart and an unforgiven heart. I want you to know finally, the child of God's reception. The child of God's reception. 
It's captured by that last phrase there. As the Lord has forgiven, so you also must forgive. The standard of forgiveness is set by the Lord's forgiveness. As Christ has received any one of us, we are to receive others. This is the child of God's reception. It is evidenced by the willingness to forgive others. This portion of our text should cause our minds to observe a couple of issues about the lack of forgiveness. One commentator uses the word inappropriate to describe the nature of lack of forgiveness. That is to say that it's unseemly in nature. First, a lack of forgiveness is unsuitable for a believer because it is always inappropriate to not offer to someone else what we ourselves have received. Indeed, each one of us is already forgiven. How can we not offer forgiveness to somebody else? At best, it is hypocritical to be willing to receive forgiveness, whether from Christ or a fellow believer, or even an unbeliever, and yet never extend it. The second reason that a lack of forgiveness is unsuitable for believers because it is always inappropriate to not offer what Christ has already offered them. If Christ has already granted absolution, how can we withhold it? Already that individual has received divine forgiveness, but we would deem them unworthy to receive human forgiveness? We make light of God's grace when we will not give what we are willing to receive. There's an all too common reality in which forgiveness is really never genuinely offered. Either it's not offered at all, or verbally one will say, I forgive you, but in reality their attitudes and their actions prove they haven't offered forgiveness at all. They, they nurture bitter feelings and ill will towards the offender. A willingness to receive what we will not offer is indicative of a heart hardened by a lack of sufficiently understanding what it is we have received. This forgiveness has already been brought to the attention of the Colossian believers. We saw it in the previous chapter, Colossians chapter 2, verses three and 13 and 14. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. By the work of Christ, all has been forgiven. And Colossians 2, 13 and 14 is a clear representation and picture of that forgiveness. Notice that the forgiveness of God is both quantitative and qualitative. First, there's not a single sin that God holds to our account. If I can challenge you this morning, take a moment and think about all of your sins. Maybe we should make it easy and just think about all of our sins this morning. Consider in just the last few hours every impure thought, every impure action, and every impure motive. Think about those for a moment. What is it that we've done that the Lord would not be pleased with? What is it that we've done to offend him? Now, remember they are forgiven. 
every single one of those things that you just thought of. It is obscured by the sacrifice of Christ. The Lord's forgiveness is quantitative, meaning he's forgiven all. Now I wanted you to take your sins, though, and put them in order from bad to worst. Maybe beginning with those moments when you cut somebody off in traffic. Add to that every unkind word you ever uttered. Keep going and and remember every sin as it progressively gets worse. From those evil, horrendous thoughts about others, all the way to the, the times when some of those thoughts became actions. Maybe it's the moment when we expressed our anger, verbally and physically, towards somebody else, which the Lord calls murder, by the way. Maybe it's lust, which Christ called adultery. It could be strife. It could be division. It could be hatred. It could be immaturity or even just pride. Gather all of those up. And when you feel the weight of that, when you feel the burden of that pressing down on you, and you can bear it no longer, when it becomes too much that you can't even look upon yourself in a mirror, then remember God looks upon us. He has granted forgiveness for all of those. And he did so from the tiniest of offenses to the largest, most severe, most grievous of offenses. His forgiveness is both qualitative and quantitative. The psalmist is right to ask then, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Indeed, who could stand? Certainly not I. But then look what he says in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so we look upon the forgiveness of God and can sing with John Newton, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is the forgiveness God has granted to us. And so this is the forgiveness that he calls upon us to show towards one another. Who are we to withhold what God has already forgiven? In college, at community college, I had a professor. I would tell you she's probably not a believer, but would profess religious backgrounds. And I met her at a time not long after her husband died. Her husband was killed in an auto accident in which a car by a drunk driver crossed the center line. Something went through the windshield and it killed him. Called upon in court to, by this man, to forgive him for what he had done. Indeed, this professor stood up and said, yes, I forgive you. When I knew this lady, I was not a believer. I wasn't even a professing believer. I didn't understand how somebody could offer such forgiveness. It's only when I came to the realization of who I was and how much God has forgiven me did I then begin to realize and see how forgiveness in that situation was even possible. The standard of our forgiveness is God's forgiveness of us. And if we can't forgive others, then we really don't understand how much God has forgiven us. 
Paul writes, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This text is a confrontational text, not controversial, confrontational. Because it confronts the culture's view of forgiveness. It confronts the church's view of forgiveness. And it even confronts the Christian's view of forgiveness. Most importantly, it confronts our hearts. What is being presented by this one verse, just one verse, it goes against our nature. And with it comes this list of disturbing questions we'd rather not answer. Questions like those offered by one commentator who asks, are are there hurts that I'm harboring? Is there anything in me that needs the Lord's forgiveness? Is there anyone whom I need to forgive? And most importantly, would the people around me recognize me as forgiven? And would they recognize me as forgiving? These questions, this attitude of examination, this heart of forgiveness, it is born out of a child of God's restraint, a willingness to restrain oneself and bear with those who are awkward or different. It is born out of a child of God's release, a heart that is predisposed to forgive and to do so freely and willingly, releasing others from their obligation of restitution. And it is born out of a child of God's reception, receiving others just as God has received us. It not only establishes our standard for how we treat one another, but it initiates a lifestyle that is often contrary to our nature. When we seek explanation, forgiveness offers exoneration. When we seek punishment, forgiveness offers pardon. And when we seek retribution, forgiveness offers reconciliation. With this call, the Lord has established a standard to regulate our relationships. But notice something important. The way the Lord calls upon us to relate to one another is the same way he relates to us. The way the Lord calls upon us to relate to one another is the same way he relates to us. The conduct of our relationships with one another are meant to be an imitation of the conduct of our relationship with God. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, you are the forgiving God, never needing to be forgiven. You have forgiven endlessly, Lord. Father, your forgiveness is immense, and and we get the blessing to be recipients of that forgiveness, Lord. Father, may we look upon that and be encouraged and thankful bowing down to you, knowing that we needed that forgiveness, and yet extolling praise because you have offered it, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for the way you've saved us, the way you've forgiven us, and the way you will always forgive us. Forgiving not just the sins of the past, but forgiving that which we will probably do. Father, I pray that forgiveness would be the nature of our heart 
that out of compassionate hearts and meekness and kindness and patience, Lord, may we extol forgiveness to one another, to those around us, to our families, and to those in the society, Lord. Create in us a clean heart and cultivate in us a heart that is reflective of your forgiveness. We commit all of these things to you. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.